Prince Harry's briefings left the Queen angry, the monarchy's popularity takes a hit, and Prince Harry has a new award in his sights. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello listeners and welcome to the show. There is a new royal biography out this week by Robert Hardman, who's like a big senior features writer for the Daily Mail. Uh, He is also the man behind a recent Access All Areas documentary about King Charles and the coronation for the BBC. So there is every reason to believe that he has been in a position to get the quotes that he attributes to palace staffers and aides and people like that. Um, He even actually has a line in his book from Princess Anne. Most notable, though, from a serialisation of Charles III, New King, New Court, The Inside Story. Um, This was serialised in the Daily Mail. Uh, Most interesting of all from it is a palace courtier who says the Queen was as angry as I'd ever seen her after a dispute about the name of Harry and Meghan's daughter. So Princess Lilibet was named in tribute to the Queen, um, so she had that nickname within the family dating back to a time when she was a young child and she was trying to say her own name, Elizabeth, and she mispronounced it as Lilibet and the name just stuck, basically, but it was obviously a highly personal nickname that was only used by those closest to her. So it was, you know, for some, I suppose it was considered presumptuous of Harry and Meghan to borrow the name, but Harry and Meghan said that they uh, felt they had permission, basically. Harry's team, back in 2021, said he called the Queen to tell her, um, and it was reported in Vanity Fair that he had sought her permission for it. And it appears to be that off-the-record briefing. There was also a similar one in the Times, the UK Times, not the New York Times. Um, it, it appears to be that brief from a source that appears to have upset the Queen. So it wasn't actually necessarily the use of the name, um, but it was the fact that it was briefed that she they had asked her permission. Palace staffer clarified to the BBC at the time, this is back in June 2021 when Lily was born, um, that the Queen was never asked. So the real issue, I think, was down to whether Harry explicitly said, kind of, is that okay? Do you mind... Would you rather we went with something more formal, like Elizabeth, or something else entirely? Um, you got to bear in mind, obviously, the Queen, she's in her 90s at the time, and, you know, she was a very traditional person. Um, Harry's team blew up about it all, and they complained to the BBC, they got their lawyers involved, Shillings, the UK solicitors, and I remember even now that there was this real conviction in the Sussex camp that they were going to get the BBC story pulled, that it was coming down imminently, um, but the Beebs stood their Ground and Hardman it says in his book uh, that actually what the Sussex camp was hoping for would be a joint rebuttal with the palace as well, um, but they actually got short shrift from the palace. And of course, this uh, palace staffer says that, to Robert Hardman that the Queen was very angry about it. Now, there's a part of me here that feels like I can see how Harry and Meghan might have been frustrated. They released a statement at the time saying Harry did speak to the Queen, and if she had objected, they would not have gone ahead with calling Lily that name. For what it's worth, at the time, the contacts I spoke to said the key issue was around this particular phrase that the Queen was never asked. So it's not necessarily that the palace was saying that there was never a conversation. It's about whether Harry actually asked for permission. Like, did he say the words, is it okay if I do this? And gave the Queen an actual kind of proper opportunity to say no. 
And, you know, in that respect, I can, to some extent, see the other side of the story, too. Now, there might also be a cultural thing here for American listeners, so I just want to put a little bit of context on it with an example that is nothing to do with naming of names. But for some, especially upper-crust British people, especially of the Queen's generation, you don't kind of ask for... So this is my example. It's not the same, but this is my example. You don't kind of ask for the potatoes at dinner, right? Like, this is a small example, but it's just one example. You don't say... Oh, can I have those potatoes if you're sitting around? Like, I'm not even talking about formal banquets where you've been invited, you know, to a gala do or a dinner at the palace. I'm just even talking about in someone's house, sat around for a family dinner. You would say instead, you'd turn to the person next to you or the person who prepared the meal and you would say, would you like some more potatoes or can I offer you some potatoes or something like that? And the person next to you would say, oh, no, I'm fine, but you go ahead. And then once they've said that, then you can serve yourself. So this is like, you know, it's not everybody. If you're going to go to Britain now and you're going to go and stay with, you know, 30-year-olds or whatever, you're not going to get this kind of formal way of doing things. It's kind of old school. It's not It's not modern Britain. But um, needless to say, like within that culture, you don't just pop up and start, you know, spreading your needs across the table and asking people for stuff. You're supposed to do a little dance around the subject um, in order to kind of make sure that you're accounting for other people's needs first. And I actually remember for what's worth some American friends coming to, to stay with my family back when I was in my early 20s. And my parents loved the fact that this guy had just basically piled in on the roast beef, just started, picked up the carving knife and started carving it himself. And they thought it was brilliant because they don't like this kind of stuffy way of doing things. But it is, it's a part of the past and it's a part of kind of traditional Britain and particularly upper crust Britain. So, you know, I can see how the Queen might be exactly the kind of person where you would have to kind of go the extra mile to really like create space in the conversation for her to object. And if you just kind of called up and said, oh, by the way, we're doing this, um, then you would not necessarily have asked her because she's not necessarily going to be the kind of person who's just going to stop you and say, hold on a minute, stop right there. I don't want that. Uh, because that's not how the British aristocracy and the royal family do things. It's you know, it's a, it's a different culture. Um, so, you know, I could see how maybe she might well have felt a little bit pushed into it, and perhaps even not intentionally. On the other side of all this, though, you've then got Princess Lilibet. Like, this isn't just about Harry and Meghan. This is about their daughter, too. And she was a newborn baby at the time, and she's only two years old now. And she is going to have this name for the whole of the rest of her life. Um, and because this whole saga leaked in the media, she will always have a little shadow of doubt, or when she's old enough to hear about it, she will always have that little shadow of doubt over whether the Queen actually did want her to have that name or whether she was furious about the whole thing. Like I said, I can see where the upset might have come from, but like of all the things Harry and Meghan have said and done, like this does seem a little bit like you're just kind of picking on a then newborn baby and now two-year-old. Like Harry and Meghan have done so much worse than, than this. Like it's awkward and it might have upset the Queen. But it's a very difficult area with royal children. You know, they're thrown into the limelight very young. And Harry and Meghan are not the only people to feel difficult about the way that their children are discussed publicly. Prince William and Kate have been very protective of their children before. They've made representations to the media on a number of occasions, including in relation to things that they were worried their kids might get bullied about. And absolutely fair enough. Also, though, you know, these stories about Lily will be findable to her school friends when she's older and she could be picked up on uh, on this 
saga as a result. And people, you know, her kids, her friends in school or, you know, not friends in school could turn around and say, well, you know, you don't, you're the queen, your great, great grandmother didn't even want you to have that name, etc., etc., And they, they could use it against her. So how would William and Kate feel if the, if the roles were reversed? And that's not me saying that the leak came from their camp. I don't personally think it did. Um, but they should have some sympathy on that point. Um, and finally, you know, this does also feel like the latest example of the Queen being used almost as a political football in the royal rift. And I think that's happened on both sides, to be totally honest about it. But on the one hand, it is true that Harry and Meghan have repeatedly sought to present themselves as very close to the Queen, or as though they had, uh, direct quotes, a special relationship with her. And um, that must be upsetting and frustrating to people in the royal camp. You know, it's not difficult to believe that they did at points upset the Queen, Harry and Meghan. Um, uh, the Oprah interview was released during Prince Philip's final weeks alive. And then, you know, a month after it aired, Harry was back out there criticising the royals again through his Apple TV documentary, The Me You Can't See. Harry and Meghan had tea with the Queen in 2022 on, on the way to the Invictus Games when it was in Holland. And then days later, Harry was spilling said tea um, during an interview with Today. And he didn't just say kind of positive things. He took a kind of veiled swipe at uh, the Queen's staff saying, you know, he needed to make sure that she's protected and had the right people around her. And then, you know, for William and Charles and the King in particular... Um, not only did uh, he have to deal with this crisis, you know, before his father's death, and then immediately after his father's death, and then in his in the Queen, his mother's final years, but also Harry and Meghan were back on TV just three months after the Queen died. So she obviously died in September, and by December, their Netflix documentary came out, taking another massive swipe at the monarchy. So the urge to come back at Harry and Meghan must have, at points, been completely overwhelming. But it is also, you know, this is part of the sacrifice that comes with public life and that sacrifice is one that the Queen made throughout her whole life and there must also have been innumerable times when the Queen wanted to come back at all kinds of people, whether it was members of her own family or whether it was people external to her family, the point is she never did it and that is part of the reason why people held her in such high regard. So of all the points that might have been made to come back at Harry and Meghan, I do think they should probably have left uh, Lilibet the baby out of it um, for no other reason than that she's just so young. You know, she's a child and you can't blame her for Harry and Meghan's mistakes. Um, and, you know, she deserves to be able to grow up and one day enjoy her name and feel connected to her great grandmother as a, as a result of having it and not have to doubt that. That was not the only line in the serialisation of the book. However, uh, it's out on January 18, by the way, published by uh, Macmillan in Britain and Pegasus in America. Now, Prince William, according to sources, felt that Prince Harry's criticisms of Kate were the lowest of the low. This all relates to a section of the Netflix documentary in which Harry said, for so many people in the, in the family, that's the royal family, especially obviously the men, there can be a temptation or an urge to marry someone who would fit the mould as opposed to someone who you perhaps are destined to be with. The difference between making decisions with your head or your heart. Now, Hardman quotes a friend who said, On top of all the other breaches of trust, here was Harry making a blatant attack on Catherine. For William, this was the lowest of the low. Meanwhile, for anyone who picked up this uh, saga from the coronation um, about Princess Anne's hat, 
So she sat in front of Prince Harry at the coronation and she was wearing this very tall hat that was part of her regalia that she had on. I seem to remember, I think it was the Order of the Garter robes. Um, and it, it obstructed his view, or so it appeared. Um, and so anyone interested in that saga, there is a key and important update in the book, which is Anne has broken her silence and denied responsibility for Hatgate. And this is what she is quoted in the book as saying, the hat was an interesting question. I said, are you sure you want me to keep the hat on? Because it's quite a decent-sized hat. And the answer was yes. There you go. Not my choice. So there is Anne denying all responsibility for any role she might have played in obscuring Prince Harry's view of the coronation. Um, Robert Ardman suggests that courtiers would not have deliberately put Anne in a seat that blocked Harry's view and also suggested she had only been moved to that seat at the last minute so that she could make a swift exit. So there you have it. That is Hatgate Solved. Now, the Daily Mail went on to report a little bit more this evening, and they are running a quote which they are saying comes from the Queen, no doubt given to them, um, one assumes, by an aide, and they have quoted her saying, I don't own the palaces, I don't own the paintings, the only thing I own is my name, and now they've taken that. So they are suggesting that there was also a certain degree of consternation on the Queen's part at the use of the name. Now, obviously, there are other royal kids who have the name Elizabeth. Presumably, had they used the name Elizabeth, it wouldn't have caused such a big issue. It seems as though perhaps it is specifically use of Lilibet that has upset the Queen, according to the Mail. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, don't forget to rate and review The Royal Report on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite shows. When I'm back, two new polls make tough viewing for the palace. BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Now, I've spoken before about how young people in Britain are turning their backs on monarchy. Um, They have been telling polling agencies in increasing numbers of their desire for an elected head of state instead of the crown. Um, There is some very striking new polling out commissioned by Britain's main anti-monarchy campaign group, which is called Republic. Um, And I've also been digging back into the archives to explore whether this is actually a trend the palace should genuinely be worried about or whether it will all just blow over like other past scandals. Um, So first up, let's take a look at the numbers. Numbers from Savanta, the polling agency commissioned by Republic. Now, this poll has um, support for the monarchy dropping below 50% for the first time, by which I mean pretty much the first time ever, like the first time in modern polling. 
Um, this is putting them at their lowest ebb in the modern era. Like I, I don't, in all honesty, know if there is um, polling data on public opinion during the abdication crisis in 1936. But you know that's the kind of uh, benchmark that you're looking at here, um, because the whole of like the 60s, 70s, 80s, the royals were very popular. Um, I should stress <clears throat> there are outliers in polling. It happens. You get wild data back sometimes, and it is not impossible that this particular particular survey will prove to be an outlier. And there will, of course, also be people who say that, well, this was commissioned by Republic and anti-monarchy pressure groups, so of course it returned a negative result. That shouldn't actually make a difference because Savanta are a respectable UK pollster and they'll be using a scientific methodology. But of course, if this steps back, we'll find out. Like polling is done all the time. YouGov will poll, other polling agencies will poll. They'll all ask the same questions. So we'll find out in six months' time whether these numbers are still kicking around or not. And needless to say, here they are. Just 48% of UK adults wanted to keep the monarchy, according to this poll. 32% wanted to scrap it, and 20% answered don't know. There were simple majorities, um, by which I mean uh, less than 50%, but needless to say it was the most popular answer. So simple majorities in favour of, of a republic across a wider cross-section of the age group, right up to age 44. Um, and if that becomes a long-term trend, then that's going to be very worrying for the monarchy, because it's one thing to have negative public sentiment concentrated within one age group, but if it starts to spread from that age group into older generations, it starts to feel like the situation has reached a tipping point. So um, one thing I always try to make clear with this issue is that part of the monarchy's role in modern Britain is to kind of bring people together and offer them a place of unity where they can feel pride in their country and just be free of the toxic arguments that characterise politics. Like if we had a president or a you know a democratically elected ceremonial head of state they'd be elected by the public and half the country would love them and half the country would hate them and it would all be a big toxic argument so what the royals do is they create this space where you don't have to have somebody who 50% of the country hates you just have this ceremonial figurehead who is supposed to be able to bring everybody together unite them and give them a chance to get the bunting out and throw street parties and all the rest of it So what that means is if monarchy becomes a divisive issue, if it becomes heavily politicised, it becomes much harder to unite the country and you're back to a situation where half the country loves them and half the country hates them. So, you know, something's already been lost and not just something small, but perhaps the biggest thing that they give Britain has already been lost. So if they reach that tipping point, then that is going to uh, potentially create a situation where you might imagine that even people who lean monarchists start to go off the monarchy just because the discussion about them becomes too charged you know the silent majority may just get sick of arguments and disputes and disagreements all the time so really uh, the royals need to command high levels of public support in order to be able to continue to feel like they can represent everybody rather you know or at least a very large cross-section of society um, so will these figures simply swing back to the monarchy's favour once the Harry and Meghan saga dies down, for example? Well, Harry and Meghan, you know, it kind of has mostly died down, apart from two recent big royal books, um, that being Robert Hardman's current one, which I discussed earlier, and also Omid Scobie's Endgame. 
Um, you know, the Royals have been unpopular before, though, and they have bounced back from those past scandals. So why should they worry now? Well, I wanted to know myself whether that was a legitimate argument. So I went back and I dug out some old polling from the Princess Diana era in the 1990s and shortly afterwards in the kind of turn of the millennium. And what I found was quite striking. Firstly, the current popularity slump, even before these latest numbers um, are considered, it was actually worse than the 1990s and the early noughties. There were two separate dips, neither cut as deep as what we're looking at right now, but perhaps more importantly, it was clear even at the time that those numbers were soft, and I'll explain what I mean by soft numbers uh, in due course. But Let's give a little bit of a background. Um, For a long time, pollsters basically chose to ask the public whether they thought Britain would be better off or worse off without the monarchy. That was how they phrased the question. Do you think that if Britain scraps the monarchy, the country would be better off or worse off? In the weeks before Princess Diana's death, there was a significant drop in people answering worse off, which made commentators feel the monarchy was in crisis and that people were turning off it. The royal fairy tale had, after all, been shattered. Um, so in July 1997, just 39% of people in Britain said that the country would be worse off in an Ipsos poll. A massive slump compared to the 80s and 90s, when it was, you know, kind of north of 70% for that for that figure. Um, but mostly people were gravitating towards answering that it would make no difference. Only 12% of people felt Britain would actually be better off without the monarchy. So in other words, the slump didn't represent rising support for a republic. Uh, The monarchy then recovered after Diana's death when the country was kind of rallied round and was in mourning. And it wasn't until the early noughties that the results uh, for better off started to get, um, started to tick up. Uh, So then in 2000, the Guardian newspaper commissioned an ICM poll. Um, which showed that between 25% and 30% 30 of British adults felt the country would be better off without the monarchy, compared to just 44% who said it would be worse off. Um, So that, they said at the time, was kind of like a high watermark for the modern era. But then, the so first first point is the recent Svanta numbers have, have shown support for an elected head of state rising to 32%. So that exceeds even the Guardian's numbers in 2000. But more to the point... After the Guardian poll, one month after, Ipsos conducted further research in which they phrased the question differently. And this is the key bit. They asked it way more bluntly. They just said, um, they asked, should Britain be a monarchy or should it elect its head of state? And when it was phrased that way, 70% of people wanted to keep the royals and just 19% wanted to scrap them. This was just a month later. So in other words, just because somebody might, for a period of time, think that Britain would be better off without the monarchy, it doesn't necessarily mean that they actually want to go ahead and scrap the crown. Those are two different things. You can be, you know, grumpy about something, but if if you don't actually want to go through with it, then with scrapping it, then it means nothing. So, in other words, people have just lost interest in the royal fairy tale because obviously the handsome prince, uh, who is supposed to kind of you know live happily ever after with the beautiful princess, in fact had an affair behind the back of said beautiful princess, and the whole fairy tale crumbled. Um, but then there was the jubilee in two thousand two, and then Harry and William grew up, and then Kate Middleton came along, and Britain fell in love with with a new royal fairy tale, and the monarchy for many years didn't look back. You know, the crisis was gone. 
And this is the key bit. That, that's not what's happening now. That's not what is happening in Britain today. Uh, the polling that has delivered these difficult numbers for the palace has been asking the blunt version of the question. And that's what makes it so worrying. It has been getting back very difficult answers for King Charles and Prince William less than a year after the coronation, which was obviously supposed to bring everybody on side. What's more, the disaffection now is not only highest among 18 to 24-year-olds, but also, interestingly, it's higher among middle-class people in social class AB. So this feels a little bit like a backlash that maybe started with young university-educated people who are staring down the barrel of a much tougher life than their parents, you know, gone into the workplace working harder, competing harder for jobs, uh, to earn, in real terms, less money than their parents, only to then struggle to get the cash together to buy a smaller house. Um, in a say, when you think of it that way, it's easy to see why Eat the Rich narratives have been so popular recently. And, you know, there's another excellent example. I watched it this week. I was probably behind the curve, but there we are. That's life. Um, I watched Saltburn on Netflix, which is one of the darker takes on the kind of Eat the Rich trend, but um, much darker than Succession, but needless to say, has that slight strand to it as well. Um, and then you've got to take in all the background about colonialism, reparations and slavery. And what you have is a crisis that cuts much deeper to the core of what monarchy actually is, on the one hand, but also it cuts really deeply to the core of the values that younger people in Britain have now. So it's not simply you ruined the fairy tale, guys, because, you know, you cheated on your wife. It's do we actually want the monarchy? And it's people saying that they don't. Um, so, you know, if you just give a comparison, if someone who has had the tough life that Oprah Winfrey's had can be ripped apart over Maui, which happened recently, what chance do the royals have when they are literally entitled? Like, they are literally, like, born with titles. Like, that is what entitled means. Um, the entire institution is built on inherited wealth and inherited power. Um, now, never bet against the monarchy to fall back into people's hearts. This is something that people also say, and it's true. It's absolutely true. They have survived scandals that were much bigger than difficult polling numbers. They have survived scandals that ended in a literal you know, tragedy with the uh, beheading of kings. So never bet against them. And it is totally possible that they will bring it back round at some point, or that public opinion will simply change, or that people will just simply start having a totally different conversation which just doesn't have anything to do with them anymore. But what is happening now is not the same as the past popularity issues that they recovered from before. Um, and they don't have the Queen's help in winning back the nation. That said, older people in Britain are very pro-monarchy. You know, the slump has not reached the older generations. They are still very supportive of the monarchy. And that is a blessing and a curse. Uh, it's a blessing to have that support as long as you don't get complacent and overlook the dissent among young people. Uh, it becomes a curse if the palace get lulled into a false sense of security because then you can blink and wake up in 10 years' time and find that the problem has only grown and your support has only shrunk um, and Gen Z will have aged. Uh, and if they hold on to those views, then even if this was focused among you know, 18 to 24-year-olds, you give that 10 years and it becomes 34-year-olds and you give it 20 years and it becomes 44-year-olds. So if they don't bring people back round, then it will only grow. And trajectory is so important. If you can go slowly, you know, you can crash slowly. But if you don't change course, then your collapse is inevitable. And, you know, it was, it's been said to me a bunch of times before, you know, it used to get said decades ago that young people in the Caribbean didn't like the monarchy anymore. 
young people in countries in the Caribbean that still recognised the Queen as head of state had turned against the monarchy. Uh, you give it enough time and the years pass and the decades pass and young people don't like the monarchy turns into old people don't like the monarchy um, because you can't stop time and those people are going to get older. So I think it is a significant issue for the palace. It's a difficult one to solve, but it's one that they cannot turn their backs on. I'm going to take one more quick break on that note. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on X. I'm at Jack underscore Royston and you're going to find all my latest stories for Newsweek. When I'm back, Prince Harry and Meghan may be set for their first joint LA red carpet. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Prince Harry is to be inducted into the Living Legends of Aviation Hall of Fame and therefore has an invite to an awards gala at the Beverly Hilton on January 19, hosted by John Travolta. Now, I must admit, I didn't, before this moment, know what the Living Legends of Aviation Hall of Fame was or even that it existed. However, that's kind of not the point. I think what's interesting about this award is that it gives Harry and Meghan, should they want it, um, an opportunity to get back on the red carpet, to turn up looking fantastic. If they both go, it will be their first joint red carpet appearance in California. They've done them in New York, but they have not, since moving to California um, four years ago, been on the red carpet side by side. Meghan's done one by herself, which was Vanity Fair in November, I think. Um and she looked great and she looked like she was having fun and enjoying herself so who knows maybe we will see them both out to you know get Dory around she can do the childcare and look after the kids and all of that kind of thing and maybe they'll find it fun they, it's not impossible they'll go I mean they, they actually went all the way over to the east coast to New York to do the Intrepid Museum there was a gala there and I think Harry I seem to remember he presented an award And he did fly all the way over for it. So it's not impossible that he will attend this. It has gone to some big figures before. Morgan Freeman uh, got it and he he turned up in person and was photographed. Um, It's also gone to Tom Cruise and Elon Musk and some people from yesteryear like Buzz Aldrin had it. Uh, you know that he walked on the moon. That's you can't top that in aviation terms, can you? Walk being walking on the moon, but um, it has caused some consternation. You know, not everybody is happy about this. And to give a flavour of why they gave it to Harry, the uh, awards press release said that Harry was a British Army veteran and pilot with ten years military service, flying training missions in the U.S., U.K., and Australia, as well as combat missions in Afghanistan, saving the lives of Allied forces and countless civilians. 
and creator of the Invictus Games for wounded veterans around the world. So he might not be the world's most incredible pilot ever, that's fair enough, but he has definitely done a good stint. He was co-pilot gunner of an, of an Apache attack helicopter, so technically the pilot is probably the more capable aviator in that relationship. But of course, I think the point with Harry is that he didn't actually have to go and fight. You know, he didn't have to put himself in harm's way. He didn't have to go all the way to the front line. Uh, he could very easily have got away of not doing it. In fact, he was actively pushing it, no doubt, with um, some gentle discouragement by the palace, who would probably rather he would he had just stayed a little bit more safe. Um, and so I think it's partially in recognition of that kind of bravery, but also, let's be honest, it is kind of a PR stunt. He's a big name. It would be great for them and for their rewards if they could get him down there in person. It would really elevate the whole thing. Obviously, they're charging big bucks for tickets and for tables, and that money, I believe, is going to a foundation. So, you know, that's how these things work. That's how the world goes round. Um, and fair enough in a way, you know, like it doesn't really matter, does it? Uh, no, there are so many of these awards which are basically PR stunts. I mean, like, let's be honest, the Oscars is actually kind of a PR stunt. I mean, in a way, it's worth so much more than that, but also it is ultimately to kind of, you know, fan the flames of the public appetite for the movies and for Hollywood. So, you know, on, on a certain level, all of these awards are PR stunts. But needless to say, this has caused a degree of upset, including among some people from the British Armed Forces, including Admiral Lord West, former head of the Navy. He told the Mail, he is not a living legend of aviation. To suggest he is, is pathetic. It makes the whole thing seem a bit of a nonsense if they're willing to pick someone like Prince Harry. Kind of a fair point, but uh, I mean, you know, they're giving it to Tom Cruise. Like, <laughs> Morgan Freeman can fly, but I think, in all honesty, I do think that Harry has done more than Tom Cruise and Morgan Freeman. But Lord West continued, he is not a living legend. There are lots of people who deserve to be called this, but not Prince Harry. I find it extraordinary he has been picked. He didn't carry off any great, exciting feats of amazing flying skill while flying for the army. They're just trying to get publicity. They know it will cause a stir. I find the whole thing really rather pathetic. I mean, again, I don't, I don't actually necessarily object to Lord West saying this. Like, it kind of is on one level a little bit pathetic, but, you know, much of what takes place in these kind of things is. It's not out of the ordinary, and the only reason people are upset about it, in all honesty, is because Harry has such a huge profile that there's a huge number of stories written about every single thing he does. Uh, these awards give all kinds of stuff to all kinds of people there's what the one that made me laugh most of all i think was actually round about was it 2019 or 2020 um harry and megan got given an award for saying that they only intended to have two children um in order to protect the environment which absolutely i found hysterical because first of all what about all the people who only have one child <laughs> you know i have one child i'm not planning to have any more maybe they should give it to me um, but also, what's the point? I mean, he could break that promise at any moment. At, back in, at that time, he, they only had Prince Archie. Um, they've got Lilibet now. But I mean, they could have another child at any time. Like, <laughs> what's, what are they going to do? Give the award back? Um, so yeah, I mean, these things are PR stunts. But it kind of also doesn't matter that they're PR stunts. You know, PR exists. You, you care or you don't care. I mean, the main thing I'm interested about with this is it would be great to get some nice pictures of them looking fabulous. And if we can have that, then I do not mind that it's all a little bit silly. And that's it for this week's episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all. <laughs>